So in a, a few moments we're going to open it to whatever you, you'd like to inquire about or explore about bringing this home, bring this alive. But just to, as, a, as a way to set a context, one of the things I'm most aware of when we leave retreat is there is a sense of what's possible and a sense of how, you know, how we really want to live it. And um, inevitably we get, there's, there's presence and, and a sense of, oh, I can actually move through the day more like this. We get home and inevitably we, there's a sort of crash and burn where it just goes and you just don't feel so inspired or so present. And then what's added to that is some judgment of, like, I must have been kidding myself that I thought that out of it, you know. So I just want to name that one of the most powerful and important practices when you get home is to totally forgive the forgetting, okay? Let that be as important as anything else. If, if you... In addition to having the aspiration to take on a practice of what you love and to sit every day and to mirror the goodness, to have the intention to notice when you've forgotten all of that and as quickly as possible say, it's okay, it's okay. That will seed the remembrance for the next moment. Okay? You promise? (laughs) Okay, so, um, yeah, so anybody with a question? Thank you all for this incredible weekend. Laz, you just ended on a high note, and now my question goes back to suffering. (laughs) So I apologize. I'm a fourth grade teacher, and I do these practices with my students, and each year I seem to get more and more students with social... Um, difficulties, emotional challenges. And this year, more than half my class had evaluations for these two reasons. And I found myself come June feeling empathically burnt out and fried and resentful. And each student has an entourage of support services, which is wonderful, but then I'm the sole teacher responsible for communicating everything to the support, each child's support services, parents, and I was wondering if you've ever come across a feeling of being empathically burnt out and how you've worked with that. I definitely signed up to teach next year, but this year took its toll, and I've never found myself to be like, I don't care, and kind of closed down. I've often felt exhausted physically, but not emotionally the way I was this year. It's um, empathic. Burnout is actually, you know, kind of across the board, whether it could be a parent or in a relationship where you've tried to be forgiving and understanding. And it's like, it's a, it's a um, flag uh, that of needing to uh, take care better. And um, there are some situations that are just uh, too much and we, and we need more space and more time to, to just to check and say, okay, so what's needed here? you know, what's needed. And often it's, it begins with really not judging yourself for the fact that you're not feeling tender and empathetic and compassionate. Um, and that's a really important one for caregivers because if you're in the mental health professions or whatever, it's, it's you know, some days you're more open, some days you're not. And if you condemn yourself for not being having the kind of presence and openness that you want to have, it actually digs you deeper into a ditch. 
So that's just one piece, is to forgive it and to know that it's a call for more self-nurturing. And be real interested if either of you, because you've both been involved with working with young people, have uh, more to add. That's really hard. I just, I think, especially today, teachers have such a hard time. Thank you for being in the profession. And mm-hmm. I, I really, you know, wish and hope that you do find a way to take care of yourself while continuing to do this really important work. Um, I just, the only thing I was going to add, because I think that's so true, the, the forgiveness and, you know, setting, our, uh, setting a standard that we have to always be on and always be, you know, heart-filled and 100%, and that just sometimes isn't the case, and we have to just, you know, forgive ourselves around about that. I'm in a pretty high-demand situation also, working with young people and funders and all that, and and I'm a real high introvert, and so I find that um, if I don't make space for that, if I don't, you know, build in some kind into my routine, into the week, space for the quiet and where I'm not being bombarded or asked, that that happens, and it's really a horrible feeling, and, and I'm not as productive either. So I just know that I have to build that in, and sort of just being, again, in tune with when the body is saying, you know what, it needs a break from this, and then trying to give that. I know that sometimes it's hard to work that into our routines, but it's just so important that we have that time to rejuvenate and refresh and really take care of ourselves. So. Just briefly, you know, I teach um, teen mindfulness retreats. I was teaching it for the last four years, like twice a year over the summer and, and the week um, in, over New Year's. Teen retreats are very different from these retreats because you can't keep teenagers silent for any really long extended periods of time. But what I found is in in holding that container and because so many kids have, you know, a lot going on that uh, I actually just got to the point where like, you know what, I can't do this anymore. It's like taking its toll, you know. So also want to create the doorway of like, do I still want, like, why am I doing this, you know, and do I still want to be doing this? And those are like bigger questions, but I just want to invite that that can also be an option. Um, I don't, you know, I think for so many of us, we think like, well, I'm good at this, they need me, da 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 da. But it's like, if, if you're compromising yourself and your own well being, you're not going to be any good to anybody that you're wanting to serve. So ultimately, it's about taking care of this first. Hi. I'm curious, La, you mentioned the Enneagram. I am also a student of the Enneagram, and I wonder if you agree that it's a good idea to also, in, try, in understanding oneself, one use other tools to do that. What is your theory or comment on that? We need all the help we can get. <laughs> I don't just limit it to the practice or these teachings or whatever. It's like anything that gives me a perspective and that I can resonate with that kind of wakes me up to, oh, yeah, I actually do have that tendency. And is that tendency working for me or not? Not really. And so how can I balance that out a bit more? So it's really, um, so, you know, I read my horoscope. I, you know, study the Enneagram a little bit. I'll, you know, the Myers-Briggs thing, you know any BuzzFeed quiz on Facebook. 
<laughs> what kind of fruit are you? You know, it's, like, <laughs> it's all it's all information, and then we can take what we need and leave the rest behind. So yesterday, there was a great question about what's the difference and between reflection and insight versus getting lost in thoughts. And we got a great answer about the qualitative difference. And my question is, if you can explain a bit more your views on a healthy balance in the time and energy spent in between the reflection and meditation, insight, investigation, versus just trying to really be in the present. And I'm especially curious about Tara's answer since you have a background in both psychology and like, for instance, um, I think I'm not alone when I say I have a history of like PTSD and loss and trauma and um, rumination, but also a more recent coping mechanism of avoiding. And then finally getting to a point where I can uh, realize that that was even a coping mechanism and then Right now, all the different therapists or social workers and healers I talk to all have their own view of how much I, be, I should be thinking about previous experiences. So basically, my question is, how do I, and what is the balance of time and energy in between not getting caught up in stories, but also getting to re-script some of these life stories and uh, question these core beliefs? So first, just to say, it's a really big and really important question. And it's got a few questions in it. And I'm going to try to parse them out a little bit. But first to say, I think it's really helpful to think of um, the realm of reflection, wise reflection, no matter how wise it is, as one realm, and the realm of a practice that's really coming into the present moment, into the present moment as another. And investigation can be part of present, is in the present moment. Okay? So, like with rain... Primarily, the eye for me of rain is not a wise reflection. It's an investigation to the layers of what's happening right here. Whereas a wise reflection might be more about what caused this? What's the story behind it? How might this happen in the future? Things like that. So I want to make that distinction between the kind of practice where you're investigating and presencing what's actually here and any thought process that is looking into the future past and interpreting, okay? Because I can tell that those get murky. And I see the biggest downfall of rain is that people get into the eye and they go into what might appear as wise reflection and then get lost and lose the power of investigating, oh, where am I feeling this? What does it feel like? How is it changing? You know, what happens when I hold it with kindness? That kind of thing. Okay, so just to keep that really clean. Okay. Now, the realm of wise reflection, I would say to commit yourself to always having a practice of just presencing because that's a certain kind of training that we don't get and that is the, the heart of waking up. So you may be weaving in wise reflection in different ways and it's going to be a different balance for different people and trauma is one thing that will influence it. But let at the center of your practice be carving out time purely to notice and be with what's right here. Okay? 
And then it's a real decision. Um, wise reflection happens best out of presence. So that you might establish presence and then toss in a question like impermanence. What does that really mean in my life? And what is the effect of remembering aging, sickness, and death? Or you might reflect about self and no self. Like, what does it really mean to be empty, to let go of this identity? Or who would I be if I didn't believe such and such? Those kind of things. That's wise reflection. But it won't have any juice unless it's already coming out of presence. So the best guidelines for wise reflection is to establish that presence and then, like you're tossing a little pebble into a pool, then toss it in and see what happens. As for trauma, when there's associated stories, stories that trip off trauma, then it may be very unwise to go back to the storyline and you might get a lot more from the resourcing of what really brings quality of calm and stability and ease and tenderness in the moment. Build that up enough so that you can then do some of the reflecting on cause and effect so that you can resolve some of the what's locked up in there. But I would emphasize the resourcing. And this is for anyone that gets overwhelmed a lot. If you get overwhelmed a lot, then rather than opening right to what's going on in the moment or, or, or going into a story that triggers trauma, take some time to find what helps you come back a bit to a place of safety and feeling connected. So sorry for such a long wooden one, but it was a huge and really beautiful question. So I hope that's helpful. Yeah. So I have a question about working with anger. And I feel like we've been speaking a fair amount about working with sorrow and boredom and loneliness. And I found for myself that anger is our, can be a harder emotion to hold simultaneously with that kind of tenderness and loving kindness. I am a graduate student and I spend a lot of my time learning about the very kind of specific mechanisms of injustice and oppression. And learning these things has actually been a very, very deep part of my practice of seeing very clearly sort of some of the roots of our collective suffering and like being able to look those kind of right in the face. But I have also noticed a real sense of contraction that can come up around that um, and a real sense of anger, which I know, like I really actually do know in this deep way, is connected to a sense of love and commitment to life. Um, but it's something I've been really working with a lot on this retreat of like noticing that kind of fiery fist clenching sensation come up. Um, yeah. So just any, any insights and sort of how to hold that and how to hold that simultaneously with tenderness. Thank you. Just when you, when you described how you're noticing it, like the fieriness of it and the intensity of it, and I'm like, wow, that's really, that's really good. I mean, we, you know, that's really the practice. I mean, you're really doing it in terms of really just sensing what, what, what that feels like in the body. How does that manifest? How does anger manifest in the body? And just, you know, not 
trying to push it away or make it something that's wrong. Just really giving this, you know, the space to experience it. To experience it, because when we do that, we're less li- less likely to act from it. And I think that's the real sort of danger with some of these emotions, like anger, is that when we're not attentive and mindful, then we're acting from that, and the action in you know body, speech, or mind can be really harmful to ourselves and others. So it almost sounds to me like you really are, you know, doing the work and. And, and staying with it and noticing it and, and really, you know, and having the question of what, you know, how do I hold this with loving kindness? And so just uh, encourage you to continue to do that. So I, I look at anger, like every emotion, as totally intelligent and having a really important, essential role in waking us up. I get angry a lot and I get angry a lot at what goes on in the world and I had I developed a pretty explicit practice around it um, when I right before we went to war against Iraq and I'll just name how that happened which was that I was sensing we were about to again be violent and perpetuate more violence and I was enraged at uh, you know, the white males in power and the administration that were making those decisions to attack. And, um, and I had certain ones that I was more enraged at. That, you know, so I was like very, it was real personal to me, you know. And I would read the newspaper and I'd have like an, a session of sitting with, you know, I'd be thro- frothing, you know. So I started this m- newspaper meditation. And I, I still do it with, with news because news can trigger me so much where I just completely, I'll feel the anger and let it rip, you know, complete, but I'll, I'll kind of go from the story and, and just let the, just the way Louisa was saying, just let the energy be as much as it is, and in that presence sense what's under it, and under the anger is usually fear, and I'm afraid um, we're going to destroy the world, or we're going to continue to violate other humans, or we're going to violate other species, or whatever it is. So I'll feel the fear, and then I'll let that be as big as it is. And underneath that, I'll usually find a, a kind of grieving at the, the, the loss that involves, and I'll let that be big. And it comes down to under the grieving that I love life. And if I can link down to that love, then the Zen, in Zen they call it appropriate action, then I can act from the love that it has the energy of the anger there behind it. And I remember when we were approaching attack, you know, attacking Iraq that I would do this and then a group of us got together and did a you know, kind of demonstration protest in front of the White House. And it was amazing because rather than the fist, you know, like it wasn't anti-war, it was pro-peace and, and there were children there and a lot of clergy. And it was really this prayer, please do not injure the young people and old people in Iraq and don't have our people go over and get injured and don't... It was more on that spirit. And we all got arrested. In fact, they made jokes about white-collar crime because of all the clergy that were getting put in paddy wagons. But it had a a different spirit than the violence that perpetuates violence. So let the anger be a portal. Yeah. Yeah. My question is the relationship between attachment and love. 
Um, I often find uh, that if you live far away, you know, from your uh, near and dear ones, there is always this um, thing in your mind that you're not attached, but you know you do care. And so and how does that affect practice? So I think it's, it's about defining what love and attachment, you know, each is. And to me, love is, is this generous offering of this energy of connection that has um, no agenda or no, like, attachment to an outcome. Like, if I love you, I'm going to expect you to love me back. Or if I do this for you, I expect you to do something for me back. And so um, with distance, you know, it becomes more of, like, trusting that that's there. And in whatever ways it's possible, you know, through the distance, to have that expressed. Um, and so I just, I just want to add, can you give her the mic back? Just sort of tease out your question a little bit more in terms of what do you mean specifically love and attachment? Uh, um, it's just more about, you know, your family, your sisters just living far away, and you just get a comment that you're not attached. And so you feel that. And and it's a question of sense of purpose. Like, I think um, that's my question. I mean, how is love and attachment related? For me, when you said that, is that my my family immigrated to this country, and so there was a um, and it was Cuba, so you couldn't travel freely there, and and so there was this. Um, real distance between, you know, family members and I was, I'm thinking in particular my mother and her sisters that they didn't see each other for, you know, decades basically they wrote and it was interesting that I think because of the distance the love was maybe deeper because there weren't all of the things that we get hooked around all the things that we get attached to you did this and you acted like that and you know, you should be this way and not that way. They didn't have all those kind of daily sort of things. And so then, you know, the love, I think, was manifested in a, in a sort of in a deeper way. So I don't know if that kind of relates to your situation, that it can sort of be different than when you have the loved one so close and you're seeing all of their, you know, yuckiness at the same time. But I, I, I also wanted to add that the... Um, you know, for me, there is a relationship between love and attachment. And not to get too sort of caught up in... When it's loved ones, I mean, there is an attachment. And that's, that's human and that's natural. And, you know, we want to be with that being. And we want that being to be happy. And, and all of those things, you know, that, that, that sense, of that yearning for that loved one, which can have a little bit of a trap of attachment, that's just how we are in these human incarnations. But real sort of attachment that isn't healthy is when I feel, when I start to feel a real constricting or, or any kind of like real shoulds or kind of a, a, a collapsing or tightening down or like, you know, it, it's, again, it's this qualitative sort of difference um, in sort of a continuum, you know. But when, um, when I'm in real attachment, there's usually some kind of gripping and suffering, you know, I sense that. I sense the suffering. Oh, I'm not getting what I want. I'm not getting it from that person. Or I want them to be this way and not that way. 
And again, as La just said, the, the continuum toward love is a lot more expansive and there's no sort of you know, right or wrong or shoulds or do's or don'ts. It's just a real sense of connection. So I don't know if that... Thank you. I just wanted to know, I'm afraid to go home. <laughs> and I, I think you know, you're in that place where, where the people around you are not connected and you can see it and you can feel it. And I think what I'm noticing is that like, I, I feel it in my body a lot. And it, and it makes me sick. And I noticed last night when we did our um, the, the, the group event, um, I was already feeling my stomach was really bothering me, and I was in pain. And I didn't want to participate. And I did because I don't know why I just did. I thought I listened to Tar, and I said, I'm going to do this. And I noticed that when I was able to connect with some people, I felt a lot of it kind of go away. And... I think one of the things that I struggle with is trying to accept that everybody is in their own place and their process of connecting or not connecting with the world is where they need to be. And I I find that I can't fix it, and I understand that that's where they need to be. I find it hard to, to maneuver in that place with people who kind of choose not to be in that space and I think I'm noticing that it affects me. And so the challenge that I have is how to allow for them to be where they are and for me to, to not be sick <laughs> and not feel it or internalize it so much. I guess that's all. I'm sitting, I'm pausing with it because I can feel... Um, I really want to honor the vulnerability that that brings into the room and I and I almost want to maybe ask how many of you have a sense that you're going back to something work whatever where there's a, a lot of disconnection or aggression or whatever and you're trying to sense how you're going to navigate it okay yeah so it's really so yeah thank you because I think this is, I think you're asking something for a lot of us that, um, that we have this yearning to be open hearted, that we sense when we connect that something does fall away, that there is, a, there is something that we value happening. And then um, being in those types of environments brings up all fight, flight, freeze. It brings up the sickness or, yeah. So I think it's our biggest question. And, and there's not so much an answer as a ways that we can begin to find what we need it more and more have some relationships some sangha some like we have the kalyanamitta which are the spiritual friends groups some places where we can i'm going to use the word practice but where we can really be vulnerable where we can look into each other's eyes and and see each other if we have some of that it gives us more heart more um, energy and spirit as we go into the places that feel threatening or, or like they force us to armor up. And so a couple of things that I notice, I'm not, I, I'm actually very lucky the environments I'm in. I'm a lot of times in environments like this where, you know, it's, but, I'm all, but the times I'm not, um, 
and I, I can see it in conferences and more formal and professional settings and so on where there's some competition and vying and presenting who we are and so on that, um, that I have to in, have internal ways of self-soothing in them I have to have ways I send messages to myself um, reminders, ways of comforting and so it's really important to have to sense what are the words you can remind yourself with what is the way of pausing or touching yourself or in some way remembering that's going to help and then also there's a real power to being able to see the suffering that is going on in people that are choosing not to connect and that's the biggest training I can mention which is and it takes being in a certain kind of presence ourselves to see how that person's leg's in a trap and how it's systemic, how the system's leg is in a trap because everybody's forced to operate to try to maximize profit everybody is being driven to consume and spend and work harder and be more and prove themselves and compete so we're in a system that breeds it and can we see the suffering of the system in the individuals we're with if we can, we get more tender and our own, there's more freedom and there's not such a sick feeling. So I hope that touches it some. And I want to thank you on behalf of all of us because that's, that's the big one. My question is, I wonder if you could speak a little bit to working with doubt, self-doubt in particular. I, I find that for me, it can be the most difficult practice. I can send out meta and I can do forgiveness practices and I can love everybody. And then when it comes to loving myself, boy, that's tough. And then I start the unworthiness thing, like I'm not really good enough for all of, for, to be here. I'm not, this is not my place or whatever. And that's when I get inside my head, but then I meet all of you and I connect with all of you and, I can, and it gets mirrored back. And it's wonderful. Last night, when we did that exercise, I totally cracked me open, and I could finally start to see a little bit of my own goodness looking back at somebody else. And it was incredible. It just kind of broke everything open. But I know that self-doubt will come back, and it always does. And for those of us who are in areas where we don't really have a big a sangha and, and connection, if you could just speak a little bit to that. Thank you. Can you say a little bit more about what specifically doubt? Is it like love of yourself or acceptance of yourself? I think it's the doubt is I am not, it's not, it's not, I'm not really a loving person. I'm not really, I can act that way. You know, I can, but you know, like the core of my being isn't really, maybe I'm acting, it's doubt, it's self, it's self-doubt. I doubt, you know, is my practice real? Am, am I sincere? Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm not feeling it for myself, maybe that's mm-hmm. it. It's an emotional, like I had an emotional attachment to people around me, mm-hmm. love for my teachers, love for the other yogis. Mm-hmm. And then I don't, like I get, it's an emotional, like, oh, I don't, I want to feel that, mm-hmm. you know, like <clears throat> deep connection to myself. Mm-hmm. Um, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So there's this deep patterning or conditioning or tendency to not do that, right? And so what what would it be like if you did? 
like? What would that feel like if you did? Because you know what it feels like to extend love, to turn that around, you know, back at yourself. You know, I think about, you know, my own story with the, you know, not thinking like I was inherently, you know, defective. And how did I need to, like, kind of show up in a way, you know, and then wanting everybody else to, like, give me that affirmation. And then I still didn't believe that that was happening to me. And what was really happening was that I was actually blocking that because I didn't believe it for myself, you know. So I can totally, like, give it. But and unless I was able to believe that I was worthy. And so, like, for me, it became almost this premise of, like, can I just believe that I'm good? You know, start from there. And, and from there, then I believe everybody else is good. And it's going to take, it's a backwards bite, right? It's going to take a while, you know, to undo that, that pattern. But it becomes your aspiration, you know, like, may I fully love and accept who I am, you know? And that was something that I struggled with for so much of my life. And I can honestly tell you right now, like, I think I'm awesome <laughs> and love myself so deeply and that... Um, and that just creates that capacity to totally like feel that. So like even in this, in this space, I can feel the vibe and just feel like this emanation. It's almost like um, I just shared in a small group yesterday. Like a, a meta practice, rather than using phrases, just like see if you can just radiate love from your heart. Just radiate it, you know, outwards, energetically. You know, sometimes we're too much in here. You know, we're trying to figure it out and get it all right, but it's like, if, if you just glue your hand to your heart, just hold it as much as you can and breathe into that as much as you can, maybe make it more of like a, a physical experience, like, I got you, and you're okay, there's nothing wrong with you. you know, there's a, I don't know if you've heard of Dharma punks, but you know, they're um, these practitioners, and they are often tattooed, and um, this one teacher has a tattoo that says on it, um, I love you, keep going. And even when you feel like you've fallen back or stumbled or, you know, doubt, just say, I love you, keep going. It becomes a part of you. And when I first started the meta practice, I was like, what is this? Like, I'm not fe- I don't feel it, you know. But the more I did it, I felt it more. It just needs to be a part of who you are. And it takes, you know, consistency and perseverance and just the continuity of that. But you've got to want it for yourself. You know, that's the number one thing. That's why aspiration is so important. So if you're clear about what your aspiration is for yourself, to love yourself and accept yourself fully, align everything that you do, say, think, believe to that and see what happens. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.